Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. This is Andrea Schwartz with my co-host, Reverend Steve Macias, and today is February 22nd, 2019. Greetings, friend. Hi there, Andrea. Are you enjoying your February week off from school? That's right. It's a week off for President's Day, celebrating our our American founders. Now, when I was growing up, today, February 22nd, was a holiday. It was George Washington's birthday. And it came after the February 12th holiday for Lincoln's birthday. Now, somewhere along the line, this morphed into President's Day, celebrating the office of president rather than just the persons. And I know there are many opinions floating around about each of these men mentioned. You either love Lincoln or you don't love Lincoln, but that really isn't the subject for today's discussion. One of the things I observed in how my thinking has changed over the years is that when I first began homeschooling my son, when he was in the primary grades, I had him memorize all the presidents up until that time. And I also made current events and countries and capitals and the name of our senators and and congressmen and all the states. I made this all a priority, paying less attention to the notable people of church history. And I believe many people fall into my previous mindset. Without knowing it, I was elevating the state, the civil government, into a higher plane than that which included the forebears of the Christian faith. So the question for today's out of the question that I'd like you to begin to explore, Steve, is this. Why do Christians know so little about church history? It's a great question, and it's a troubling thing because we see every single year, whether it's Pew or Barna or even you know Ligonier does a, a state of theology survey, that Christians really are disconnected from historic theology. They have very little knowledge of who our founding Christian fathers are outside of the Bible. Um, and even there, they struggle with connecting between, you know, St. Paul and Constantine. That entire era is kind of a mystery to them. From Constantine all the way to the Reformation is like almost a part of the church that was misguided or somehow the church had gone off the rails and needed to be restored at the Reformation. And so, I think that one of the reasons that people in Christian churches who grew up Christians or become faithful Christians are so unfamiliar with church history is because our priorities today are so short-sighted that what somebody thought a thousand years ago doesn't seem to be relevant. It's much more important, as you point out, to focus on our local government leaders or local religious celebrities instead of focusing on the foundations that got us here. And I think it goes even beyond just the civil realm in terms of political matters. We've elevated the celebrity. I can remember going into a public library in my area and noticing when you went to the biography sections, you had a section, the the, the biographies were of the singer Cher or Prince or the Beatles And you couldn't find too much about anything other than pop culture or the traditionally accepted people we should revere. 
That's and right. It's, it's very disheartening because when people go to a library, it's like, oh, this is where I'm going to go to find the things I need to know. If it's important, it would be here. And you also have to complicate that, this conflicting desire of rewriting any history you do find. So if you happen to come across a biography of George Washington or, or somebody of American history, the ones that are published by the large publishing houses today attempt to maybe cast them in a bad light or rewrite their history or find something negative to focus on rather than their achievements or vision or goals. And so you have, in one sense, the, the lack of materials. In the other sense, the ones that do exist have a progressive agenda trying to disparage uh, the American founding fathers because of their Christian faith or their view of social society, things like that. So recently I was listening to Dr. Rush Dooney's series on world history. And that series includes a series of tape lectures along with a study guide and a book that goes along with it. And these are available from Chalcedon. Interestingly enough, when he spends time on the early church and post St. Paul all the way to Constantine, there are all sorts of pieces of information. And I've listened to this before, but listening to it again, I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Uh, One of them being the accounts of the faithful martyrs who put their loyalty to Jesus Christ above their own lives. And I think that's a concept that's very foreign today. I think most believers think that security and comfort is the way in which God shows them how much he loves them. No, I think that what Francis Schaeffer would describe it as personal peace and affluence are the goals of the Christian today, or even most Americans. The idea of sacrifice or martyrdom are really foreign to us, especially if you consider the causes for which Christians were martyrs for you know, some of us have this misguided notion in our, in our back of our minds that somehow Christians of the early centuries were martyred because the Romans were after Christ and trying to destroy his religion and were trying to undermine his theology. The cause of Christian persecution was not primarily theological. If you, as you read Rush, Juni, it was over this one idea of, is Jesus Lord? And so in one sense, the persecution of Christians was political if Christians had held their beliefs, you know, the divinity of Jesus or the resurrection, they could have held all of those theological ideas. Um, but if they would have added those to the Roman state religion, accepting Caesar as Lord alongside Jesus as one of the gods of the pantheon, then there would be no persecution. And so when we look at the martyrdom and what they were willing to be martyrs for, it was something that modern Christians would find really untenable or or even untasteful to die for the idea that Christ is Lord over the civil government, Lord over the the universe, Lord over Rome, Lord over the governing authorities. You actually have Christians in the pulpits today in major seminaries and churches who would disagree with why the Christians were first martyred, and that was by saying Jesus is the present King of Kings. And they would probably accuse them of being legalists or zealots, that the highest good is to get along with the culture around you. And Rashtuni makes the observation that the best citizens of Rome were the Christians. Mm-hmm. They didn't say, oh, well, if this, I don't like this law, it doesn't suit my fancy, I'll go ahead and disregard it. They were anything but the criminal class. They were the best citizens. However, as you pointed out, 
because they were not willing to give up their loyalty to Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And they were given many opportunities to recant and they wouldn't do it. That's right. It's no surprise to me that we're not going to see even in Christian bookstores, and I go look to see if you can find books on the martyrs, and you cannot. It's not readily available unless you know to go and look. And some of the stories, especially of the female martyrs, are incredibly moving because they were, they were young mothers who were basically being not so much railroaded, but trying to be convinced by their families, look, you have a nursing child. You have to, have, you have to take care of their your child just recant. And they're saying, no, my savior died for me. I cannot renounce him. And there's a lot of things there about the, the early church that most modern Christians would find to be what you called you know, legalistic or rigorous because they took those vows, those baptismal vows, those commitments and their oaths to the Christian gospel to be something that really mattered. You know, they took the words of Christ to let your yes be yes to be all of you, not just you on Sunday. It became an entire life and worldview. And for many Christians from basically the time of St. Paul all the way through the persecution of Diocletian, all the way up until Christianity was legalized 300 years after Christ, to become a Christian was almost to accept certain death. And with that, the church grew. In other words, if it was just as easy to wipe these people out, then the persecutions, the martyrdom should have worked. It should have made Christianity something of the past. And yet, what's the expression that the blood of the martyrs grew the church? Yeah, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's right. And even the church history, which Rush Dooney covers in his book, The Foundations of Social Order, talks about how the church confronted heresy and ways in which the enemies of God try to subvert the true faith and change what is the life-changing aspect of God becoming man in two natures and those two natures not being confused and that nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus the Son. And I dare say that most Christians today, if we were to pull them on aspects of doctrine and history would come up way short. No, that's absolutely right. And I think what's important to recognize with these early Christians, especially as we are talking about President's Day and and government and all that, is how Christians organize themselves in these early years. You know, they took St. Paul's admonition not to go to the pagan judges seriously so much that they established and set up Uh, rival courts of Christian justices, right, to handle civil disputes among the churches. And I think Rushton actually points this out. I can't remember if it's in um, that particular work, but the, the changing of the Roman leadership. Previously in the Roman government, you had Roman judges who were leading over the people, operating as civil magistrates. But as Christians were faithful and just in applying God's law biblically and Uh, without partiality, folks who were not part of the Christian church would come to the Christian elders to have their matters disputed. So much that when this big transformation happens under Constantine of Christians now coming into the source of power, all of the symbols of power, you know, you see today uh, Christian bishops wearing mitres and copes and 
chasubles, all of these accoutrements were once symbols of Roman leadership, once symbols of Roman government. And so Christians being faithful for 300 years, basically sacrificing themselves at the altar of, of Christ's standards, see a transformation where the Roman guard, the Roman law is set aside, Christian law, the Mosaic law is elevated, and the leaders who applied it, these elders and bishops, are made the new judges of the Christian West and the Christian Roman Empire, so much that even the operational functions, you know, the West has the system of diocese. This was borrowed completely from the the Western Roman system. So you see the faithful Christians really create parallel systems and then eventually take over the existing structures because of God's blessing on covenant faithfulness. And this should be an incredible encouragement to those people who want to see the rule of Jesus Christ permeate throughout our society, through every institution. It actually has been done before, but because people don't know their history, they don't know the history of their forebears, they gravitate towards an eschatology or an end times scenario that says we keep losing and losing and losing, and then when we've really lost bad, then we get you know, elevated out of here when that's not what the Bible says, and it's certainly not what Christian history teaches us. That's right. The Christian history of the first thousand years is the triumph over the gospel over all the world. What Christians fail to realize is that by studying the history of the undivided church of the first seven ecumenical councils, basically from the time of St. Paul to the year 1000, when the church begins to come under the assault of Islam and all kinds of other external forces, but that first 1,000 years represents really a, a millennial growth of the kingdom that is unparalleled within the second 1,000 years. You see something magical happen where the gospel, the culture, the identity, all of these things are being worked out in ways that the 12 apostles never imagined would be possible. You know, you have the gospel as Christ promised, go to every corner of the world in these first 1,000 you know, years. Uh, Christian civilizations established and begin to thrive the birth of the university, the hospital, uh, modern medical institutions and scientific institutions are all born out of this Christian identity. It's so strange for us who live in a culture where uh, science and information are so highly valued and to not recognize that in the secular unbelievers worldview, they really went, they believe that the world went for billions and billions of years and nothing changes. Yet in the year, you know, that Christ is born, to the year 1000, there's this radical transformation of the entire world where every bit of progress is happening, every strata of society. You know, the idea of an individual, of constitutional rights, the idea of personal autonomy, of sovereignty, all of these ideas that have never been able to express or been able to put together are suddenly existing in every corner of the Western empires. And it's all because of the seed of the Western church. Because the people change, because the Holy Spirit changes people, and thereby their culture changes. It's really sad when you look at a map of the world in terms of where Christianity is growing. And sadly, North America and United States and Canada are abysmally blank in terms of the furtherance of Christian thought. So what happened is... Christians, knowing so little about their history, are willing to believe in an evolutionary model, in a humanistic model, 
in relativism, having no concept that Western civilization and Christendom have their roots in the law and the gospel. And I think it really goes back to, you know, what do we believe? Uh, Abraham Kuyper and, and Cornelius Van Til and Rush Dooney spoke of, of Calvinism as a total life and world system, right? So it had a, a gospel that applied to every part of your life. And unfortunately, even amongst Reformed people today in America, that idea of, of the gospel has been so truncated. You know, it only applies to so many areas of your life. It's divided between secular and sacred. It's divided between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. It's divided between my personal preferences and, you know, things that are neutral. And I think that has really permeated American understandings and why modern American Christians are so uncomfortable with the early church. You talk about modern uh, ideas of martyrdom, and the modern idea of martyrdom is saying something and being offended or dealing with social justice. Those are the ideas of martyrdom that our culture is talking about, not about sacrificing your entire world and life view towards a higher cause, like the Christian gospel. And so it's very uncomfortable for them to, to read about the early church and the commands of the early church. So, for example, Dr., uh, the right reverend Dr. Ray Sutton, he wrote that you may prosper, basically establishing a covenantal idea of succession. He talks about membership or, or church attendance in the first few hundred years of the church. And because the church was under such harsh persecution, it was expected that anybody who was baptized and admitted to Holy Communion would be there at the church every week. If you didn't show up, it probably meant that you were apostatizing. And so they would put you under discipline or penance if you missed a Sunday. Now, if you were to say that today in American Christianity, you know, you'd be seen as a legalist. But there really was an expectation that when you became a Christian, that you were part of a Christian body. Now, I'm not saying we should go back and institute penance for people who miss Sundays, but they took something about becoming a Christian more seriously than we do today. And I think we need to reattach ourselves to those Christian history roots. And because, as you pointed out, it wasn't a way to be safe to be identified as a Christian. When new converts, and I'm not talking about children, but I'm talking about people who were adult and could reason and could understand more so than infants, they took the oath, which we would codify in terms of the Apostles' Creed, that this is what they believed. Nowadays, people can be told that their sins are forgiven, and they know nothing about doctrine, and they know very little about church history. Thus, we have a bunch of people coming around who identify as Christians, and then other people are shaking their heads saying, well, how could this person be a Christian and still do this or still believe this? And we've made such a big tent that we have lost this idea that to be aligned with Jesus Christ is to be making not only a spiritual declaration, but a very political declaration. That's right. And I think another aspect of this is that we Christians have really adopted a perspective of surrender, you know, academically. We leave the study of the church fathers as something that really is no relevance to us. And so we surrender it to groups like the Roman Catholics or the Eastern Orthodox, and they get to choose to rewrite all of the church fathers and opinions and perspectives in terms of their modern philosophies. And so because we've surrendered on such fundamental documents, we have 
separated ourselves from the historical church. And that, that feeling of surrender, you see permeate into our political philosophies today, too. You, know, you mentioned at the beginning of this, we have people with different views of you know, the American founding fathers. Of You have Dr. Rushdoney's This Independent Republic or the, the Nature of the American System, which point out what we're talking about, that that Christian history provided the foundation for the American Republic, for the system of constitutional government that you can trace back from America through the common law of England, through the Magna Carta, back through Western culture, that all of those come back to St. Paul and Jesus and their writings that are fundamental to the scripture and even back further to the writings of, of our Lord in those 10 laws he gives to Moses. So there's a certain foundation, but we have all taken to surrender even those 10 commandments to be something that doesn't belong in our important toolbox. I dare say you could ask most students who go to church on Sunday, they may go to Sunday school. I doubt how many of them could actually tell you what the Ten Commandments are. Some things you could point out to them that God's law includes, and they would argue with you and say, oh, no, because their parents never taught them, and their parents probably don't know it either. No, that's absolutely right. And there are very few churches that would even teach on the Ten Commandments. I know that there's a, a popular trend amongst modern Christians to say something like Ten Commandments were for the Old Testament and uh, the, new, the new law that Jesus gives us is for new covenant believers. That the idea of loving your Lord with all your heart, strength, mind, uh, and loving your neighbor as yourself have superseded the Ten Commandments instead of recognizing that these two ideas you know, complement each other. The way you love the Lord is you follow that first tablet of the commandments and the way you love your neighbor is you follow that second tablet of the commandments. And by following those 10 commandments, you therefore fulfill the law. And again, if you read church history, you would see whether you're reading Hippolytus or St. Ignatius of the first century or reading the men of the Reformation, Calvin and, and Luther, that they saw the 10 commandments as essential to not only the Christian life, but to Christian worship, to Christian government, to Christian families. The Ten Commandments were the foundation for every social sphere, whether it was the state or the school. The Ten Commandments were how God explained we should live. They were our sociological structure. And without that scaffolding or framework of the Ten Commandments, everything else really falls apart. Add to that the fact that you have people who if you even bring up the church fathers, they'll say, oh, that's very dry reading. Why do we need to know this? Well, it points to a progression. We should be able to read church fathers and men of the Reformation and say they got this right, but because of their day or their circumstance, let's go to the scripture and see were they right on all counts. So the church would constantly be reforming as opposed to if you're going to study church history, none of this applies because you see, we don't believe that today. And many people have no idea, not only what they believe, but why they believe it. And we also live in a day where there's so many different opinions that we start to believe that it's like a cafeteria. Like, well, I can take this idea from Dr. Rushdoony and take this idea from Kenneth Copeland, take this idea, and suddenly I create my own theological worldview, when that's not the way the Christian worldview has always worked. You know, it, it the frame of reference has to work the other direction. It has to start with, all right, we have the God who is revealed in the scripture, and then what do we work out from there? And so the way that Christians have traditionally done that is they work from creeds and confessions based upon the scripture, 
and there's kind of a uh, an understanding that these are the common ideas of the Christian faith and that these are what Christians have always believed everywhere. And having no knowledge of the church history, you're not able to make that kind of distinction, right? If you don't know who St. Ignatius of Antioch is, who lived in you know, the year of 96 AD, if you don't know what he taught about church government and somebody who's just a few years away from the apostles, if you don't know what his thoughts are, <laughs> How can you make a judgment on whether or not this is the biblical model, right? So there's a sense of protection by going to the church history. We can say the things that we're teaching today, the things that we're believing today are the same things that Christ taught because there's a unbroken historical record of, all right, salvation has been by faith. We read that in the teachings of St. Paul. We read that in the teachings of St. Augustine. We read that in the church fathers. We read that throughout the medieval period. We read that in the church reformation. So because there's this unbroken idea, we can have confidence that salvation by faith is the teaching of the church from all history. Now, that's the opposite of how a cult works, right? So if you take you know any cult, whether it's Charles Russell Taze with the Jehovah Witnesses or Joseph Smith with the Mormons, they have a restorationist philosophy. They say, Here's a new thing that has never existed in the history of the church, you know, Book of Mormon or New World Translation, and we're going to propose this new idea without any continuity between the Bible and it, and expect you to believe it without confirmation from the church fathers. You know, anybody who reads Aquinas or Augustine or Anselm, any of these guys could easily recognize how foreign Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or any of these other cults are to the Christian faith. But because we don't recognize that, we, our culture falls prey to these cults. Now, if you read Calvin, the Institutes, if you read our Reformed fathers, even you know, Luther, their sermons, their books are saturated with the references to the patristics, to the Latin fathers, to the Greek fathers, because they recognized that there is a great strength to our theology if it's fortified with this historic witness. Exactly. People were interested in understanding the scriptures. So they didn't take the writings of the church fathers as the same as the dogmas of scripture, but they recognized that part of God's provision for the church was to give the, the people of God teachers and instructors who would help us understand better the application to our day. Absolutely. You're familiar with, with Josh McDowell, right, Andrea? Yes. So he, he's one of those evidential apologetics guys. And so our presuppositional friends will have to forgive me for invoking his name for a moment. But uh, when I was a young Christian, uh, 17 years old, I picked up a copy of the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And I'm reading through there and I come across a section on the church fathers. And the argument that he makes uh, about comparing scripture and, and the church fathers, I think is very compelling. He says that, when you look at the manuscripts for the New Testament, right, how we preserve and are sure that the scripture we have today is the same scripture that Jesus spoke, the same scripture that St. Paul penned, how we're sure this scripture is reliable, is you can look at the letters where you know, Polycarp or Ignatius or any of these early church fathers, when they're writing to each other, they include admonitions, copies of the letters from Paul or James or Peter, in their letters to the different churches that they were shepherding. And we can go back without any of the you know, manuscript copies and just go to the church father's letters and rebuild the entire New Testament canon just from those letters. 
So when we take away our knowledge of the church fathers, we're also taking away this great testimony and witness for the Holy Scriptures. So what would you recommend in terms of a good reading list for families? Because my guess is we don't just say for children because a lot of the parents don't have this background. What recommendations would you make? This Lent, this period of 40 days between March the 6th and Easter, I'm actually leading a group of about 200 folks through 10 works of the early church fathers. And so the way I'm doing it is I have broken down these 10 works into 10-minute little bits. And so this goes through basically uh, the letters of Ignatius and uh, Athanasius, the letters of of St. Leo, his tome, these different early church writings into really digestible pieces. So 10 minutes is not a huge sacrifice. But through this, you'll work through basically the first 400 years, the essential documents. So if you wanted to participate with that, stpauls.net, so S-A-I, ntpaulsnet We're doing a um, an email list, so you sign up, and every day during Lent you'll get a a list of these. I also have a, a PDF available for those who want to do it on their own of studying these essential documents, and you'll begin to see that many of the ideas that John Calvin, Martin Luther, our Reformation fathers were revisiting are not new or novel to themselves, but really just going back to well, what did Augustine mean? when he's writing City of God or or his confessions, what were their body of beliefs? And you can really see by reading the early church fathers how the period between basically 1100 and 1400 introduced a lot of novelties and theological innovations that didn't exist in the early church. And so by familiarizing ourselves with the earliest documents, we can really protect ourselves against any papal or or Romanist innovations. Please talk a little bit about the church calendar, because you mentioned Lent, and for a lot of people, they write that off to, well, that's what the Roman Catholics observe, we don't observe that as Protestants, etc. Talk about the church calendar and the reason that the church has different seasons. Right, well, the idea of a church calendar is not new to Christianity. Many people think it's like a, a Catholic invention, but obviously if you read the Old Testament, you see that the people of God have always had a calendar. You know, one, they have the calendar of the week, you know, six days you labor, one day you rest. But they also had their series of festivals and, and celebrations that some of them were appointed by God, like the Passover. Some of them were man-made, like uh, the festival we get from Esther, you know, the Purim festival. So God's people have always recognized and organized their years, their decades around uh, the events of salvation history. And so Christians, once they have begun to internalize the gospel, immediately begin to arrange their calendar, their year, according to the life of Jesus. And so in the Christian calendar, you have two big events, obviously, Easter, uh, remembering the crucifixion and celebrating the resurrection of Christ. And then you have Christmas, which is the celebration of the incarnation and the birth of Christ, the nativity. The Christians have celebrated these two holidays since the first century, Christmas and Easter. And so in order to get prepared to celebrate the most significant events of human history, Christ coming and Christ dying, there's always been periods of preparation. Forty days before Easter is the season of Lent, when individuals who were wanting to join the church would go through periods of fasting to show their commitment before they're baptized, And then 40 days before Christmas, also called Advent, and a series of preparation for celebrating the Nativity. I mean, these are kind of two dual seasons. 
And so around that church calendar, those two major events, you have uh, different seasons, different events. You have a season of Pentecost, a season of Trinity Tide, celebrating different aspects of Christ's life. Now, different traditions have added things over the years, but it's these fundamental seasons, two seasons of penance, two seasons of celebration, that the rest of the church calendar is built on. And so something like Ash Wednesday and Lent have been practiced in the church since at least the third or fourth century as a practice of recognizing not just one time, but we have to continually be reforming our souls. We have to continually be recognizing that there is a sin that's accrued throughout the year and we need to clean it up. You know, we have the idea in our modern culture of, of spring cleaning. And so the church calendar is kind of a annual reminder that those of you who have been called and saved and redeemed by our Lord still have work to do in order to uh, become who God has prepared you to be, to do all the works that he has prepared and saved you for. And so Lent is kind of like that annual reminder that you weren't saved to just sit there and do nothing. You were saved to purify your, your, your actions, your body, to reform your body, and also to be a better witness to the world. In other words, to fulfill the Great Commission that we've been given. That's right. And it also gives the church an excuse I belong to different Reformed churches where we're very dedicated to the doctrines of grace and we include you know, regular teachings on you know, Calvinism, whatever. But the liturgical calendar forces the churches to continually be representing the life, the birth, and the death and resurrection of Christ every single year. It keeps our focus on Christ. And we have a lot of churches today except for Christ-centered well, if you're following the church calendar, your readings, your calendar, everything is continually pointing people who come into the church or grow up in the church to face the realities of Christ did really come and human, Christ did really die, and Christ did really resurrect, and there's nothing that can distract us from it because we're stuck on that calendar every single year. So many people think that's antiquated, we shouldn't do it, yet they don't seem to have problems with Veterans Day or Memorial Day things like that. And unfortunately, even those days, even those commemorations just usually mean for people a day off from work, a day off from school. So we've moved into a realm where the only thing that seems to matter is the immediate and the present. And so who's running for president? Who is in in a scandal lately? And, And that's what everybody focuses on when if you have a a sense of church history, you'll realize that the kinds of problems that we experience societally are not new. These are just revisitations of a lot of pagan practices that, by and large, as the church moved in with faithful believers, eradicated a lot of these practices. Eradicated and replaced. You know, that's kind of the great things about the calendar is that it shows wherever the church has gone, it doesn't just exist along with Roman myths or legends or or Germanic myths or legends. As the church moved from Jerusalem out to the world, the other cultures were subdued. They were transformed. (laughs) And so when we look back at the church calendar and how it's focused and, and changed Western society, isn't it bizarre that today, basically 50 years removed from Christian society, we still have Christmas as a a landmark event every single year. We still have Easter as a landmark event. And that's kind of showing that when Christians go and control culture, take over culture, they're actually transforming more than just individuals. Sadly, because the history of the church is not understood, 
and the idea that any culture is a manifestation of the religious beliefs of that culture. So when Christians came in and proclaimed the crown rights of Jesus Christ, those remembrances were turned into things focusing on Christ. Their people today, because they don't know that history, are sure that if you observe Christmas, you're really just observing a pagan holiday. And they don't realize that everything that we have in our world today is either in keeping with the covenant or contrary to the covenant. And it's always going to be a very sad counterfeit of the, the real and the legitimate that reflects a biblical world and life view. I mean, the Psalms say the earth is the Lord's and all that dwells therein. So I think the Christians need to redevelop this practice that all of history belongs to the sovereign hand of God. And especially as, as reformed Christians who believe in the sovereignty of God, we need to look back at least at these last 2000 years and see where has God been leading his people. And if we step back and, and have the vision and perspective that the kingdom is marching forward from Christ's ascension to today, it's very easy to draw out that line and to see how Christ has moved, how Christ is continuing to move and to have that hope for victory. Yes. So by means of recommendation, I highly recommend Dr. Rushduni's series on world history, which starts from the beginning and goes all the way up to the Reformation. And then pay attention to the books that are referenced and maybe take a stab at finding them. Probably a lot of them are available in PDF form if they're not currently able to be bought in hard copy. And become familiar with these people, not to demean George Washington. I love George Washington, but not to, he's not, that's not where history begins. History begins within the beginning. And the more we understand about the progressive victory of the people of God in time and eternity because of the grace of God, we're going to be in a much better position to go ahead and challenge the pagan humanistic thought of our day. That's absolutely right. And, you know, happy, happy President's Day or, or happy George Washington birthday or happy Lincoln's birthday, whatever it is for uh, your part of the country. I think what we need to realize when we look at these historic figures is not to lift them up on a pedestal or to imagine that they have some magical powers within them or, or that they were somehow sovereignly endued with you know, some constitutional power to create a Christian nation. Those aren't really the goals of celebrating their birthdays or, or anniversaries or history, but rather to acknowledge that inside of their culture, uh, this colonial period, that the gospel, the biblical standards, the things that Chalcedon has been teaching had been believed by this people, and it gave them a vision for a Christian future. And so we celebrate Washington, despite his shortcomings, despite his uh, unwillingness to come to the Lord's table. We celebrate Lincoln, even though a lot of things that he did we don't agree with biblically, because they had a vision uh, for a Christian society, for a, a vision of victory and dominion. And it was because they were formed in cultures that understood the Bible to be true, Christ's victory to be sure, that this society was capable of being brought under the dominion of Christ. There was a faithful obedience to that idea. And they will admit, if you read their writings, they didn't know exactly how it was going to work. And they tried to bring in different philosophies and different ideas from 
places other than the Bible, but they had at their core this idea that Christ's kingdom will come on earth. And so we need to recapture that idea, that Christians can have the promises of the kingdom. And let's get away from the idea of we need to have heroes. Heroes, that's not a biblical concept. It's a, it's a Greek concept. It's the idea that men became gods and they became heroes. But they weren't gods that served other people. They were gods that used other people. Our God took on human flesh and came as a suffering servant so that we could be restored to fellowship. And so when we look at anybody in history, from the church fathers to even the apostles and the disciples that are mentioned in Scripture and then people thereafter, we need to recognize the huge difference between Jesus Christ, the sinless man, and everyone else. And so we can learn from people who came before us without having to deify them because there's only one God. And the example that our one God gives is not a hero like, uh, like Hercules who goes and conquers through brute strength, but a hero that embraces suffering and, as we talked about at the beginning of this, sacrifice. The hero today is the person who lives a life of, like Christ, who sacrifices their own individual will for the redemption of the world. And that's why I hope people, another recommendation that they should pursue is Fox's Book of Martyrs. Again, not everything that's highlighted in there would you necessarily say, okay, that's how I would apply the scripture. But it's important to know that there are people who valued their salvation so much that at personal cost, they were willing to testify that Jesus is Lord. Amen. All right, Steve, thanks. I hope we've given people things to think about. And as always, if you'd like to comment on this or make suggestions, which we've taken in the past for subjects for our podcast, email us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, Andrew. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.